Welcome to the Spectator Literary Podcast. I'm Sam Leaf, the books editor of The Spectator, and joining me today is Andrew Solomon, a very distinguished American writer whose last two books have been about the inner self in some sense. The Noonday Demon was a description of depression, and his last groundbreaking study of identities and parents and children called Far From the Tree was garlanded with prizes. His latest book is Far and Away, How Travel Can Change the World, and he's turning now to what appears to be something more about the outside world and the outside life. Andrew, I'd like to start by asking you, was this book conceived as a whole? Well, it's to some extent, it's an anthology, a collection of international reporting that I did over a long period of time. But I'd been doing that sort of piecemeal reporting, and when I decided to put it all together into a book... I wrote introductions and conclusions to the pieces and felt that there actually were themes, more themes emerged that made it a coherent book than I had anticipated when I first began leafing through elderly copies of things. <laughs> the book is itself very kind of encouraging and optimistic about what travel can give us, but it's striking to me that it begins when your account of your own sort of first feelings about travel in a place of anxiety. I mean, you describe essentially being told about the final solution by your father and thinking... You know, my, father, my father had told me about the Holocaust. It kind of came up happenstance in a conversation. He thought I knew about it, and I didn't. And I remember the sort of horror and confusion when he was telling me, and I finally said to him, but, but why didn't those Jews just leave when all those laws came in and all those things started happening? And my father said, they had nowhere to go. And I remember being determined, even in that early moment, that I was never going to be one of those people with nowhere to go. So yes, there was an allure of travel that was partly that I always liked anything that was exotic and far-flung and unusual, but also partly that I wanted to grow up to be someone who had a friend in every country in the world. And you've certainly, I mean, this is sort of three decades of travel. Is there a sort of single part of the world that now you find feels more like home or you feel more at home in? You know, I feel like I'm a slightly different person in any number of locations. The countries I've spent the most time in are Russia and China, the US and the UK, of course. Um, a lot of time in Brazil in recent years. I have uh, a large readership there. I feel at home in different ways in different places. I think what I had hoped for came to be true, which is that I am reasonably good at feeling at home even when I'm not, in fact, at home. Is the book in some sense, I mean, retrospectively even, do you feel it's an autobiography in some sense? Yes, it's a sort of buildings roman. It's an exploration of my coming of age in some ways. I don't know that that will be its primary selling point among readers. But I thought when I put it all together, I thought I'm glad my children will read this someday and they'll know about the things that I've uh, done in the places I've gone. But I also think, I mean, the subtitle is How Travel Can Change the World. I feel travel changed my perception of the world very profoundly. I feel it does change the way that we understand things. And so while part of it is about, um, uh, you know, just I happen to have gotten older while I was writing these things, part of it is that the more places I went, the more clearly I was able to understand the places in which I found myself, and therefore the more profound the experience of travel became. Do you think it made a difference, though, that you're travelling here mostly as a journalist, and in fact, I think you say somewhere in your introduction that you now find it hard to go on holiday if you haven't got yes. <laughs> something to do. I mean, is there, is there a way that that makes it an unreproducible experience? 
you know, there is, of course, an element of that. As a journalist, you have enormous license to uh, ask people intrusive questions that you otherwise might not get to ask. I just came back from a trip to Sri Lanka. I was working on a travel story for an American magazine. Um, while I was there, I found that having done this sort of journalism over the years, I had a kind of automatic gut inclination to find people I had some sort of remote connection to and meet them and meet people they thought I should meet and get into the kinds of conversations that are the instigation for so many of the stories in this book. I think I've come to feel that I don't want to go someplace unless I can achieve some intimacy with that place. And I don't think that an assignment is necessarily the only way to do it. You certainly do achieve quite some intimacy. I mean, one of the things that's striking is wherever you go, stuff seems to happen to you. I mean, you know, you get kidnapped, you find yourself living in a commune with Russian artists. I mean, there's one hair-raising story maybe you could kind of briefly elaborate on where you wake up covered in goat's blood and wrapped in intestines in the middle of Senegal, which, I mean, even for most of us on a stag night, that doesn't tend to happen. (laughs) I had gone off to Senegal because I wanted to research this exorcism ritual called an undop. And I had a good friend who had a Senegalese girlfriend who had a cousin who knew someone who had once met someone who actually was a practitioner of this ritual. So through this very indirect line of connection, off I went to um, interview Madame Diouf. And she was kind of terrifying. And when we finished the interview, I said a bit shyly, do you think I could ever actually witness you performing an endop? And she said, well, I've certainly never had a foreigner. The word was tubab. I've never had a tubab do that before. She said, but... Uh, you know, you came via friends, so if you really want to, yes. And I said, when will you next be doing one? And she said, well, I'm not exactly sure, but sometime in the next six months. And I said, six months is quite a long time for me to stay here waiting for this to happen. You know, is there anyone whose procedure could be expedited? And she said, um, she said, no, it didn't really work that way. And just as I was leaving, she said, I hope you don't mind my saying this, but you really don't look so great yourself. She said, have you been depressed? And I said, well... I yes, I I have been. She said, I've certainly never done this for two bob before, but I could do an end up for you. And so I ended up in this ritual, which I could describe at much greater length, but I will say that the high point came when I found myself in a makeshift wedding bed with a ram in the central square of this village with the entire population of the village dancing around us in concentric circles, throwing pieces of cloth over us. It was suffocatingly hot. I had been told if the ram got away, it would be very bad luck. He was relieving himself on my leg. At a certain crucial moment, all the pieces of fabric were pulled off. I was yanked to my feet. My loincloth was pulled off. The poor ram's throat was slit, and I was covered in the blood of the freshly slaughtered ram. And I thought, this is a long way from uh, psychiatry as it's practiced in University of London, etc. So, yes. <laughs> highly dramatic. Anyway, I sort of, and I thought I'll dine out on the story for years, and, and here indeed I am. But what was really striking to me, though, was how much there was that was powerful in that ritual. I mean, it's incredibly comical to talk about, and it was kind of weird and comical to experience, but the entire village came together and acknowledged the problem. They all took a day off to commit to helping the person who had a problem. They brought in sunshine and music to lift someone's spirits. So even if you didn't believe in the animus principles behind it, there's a great deal in it that was quite beautiful and exhilarating from which we might well stand to learn. Well, is that sort of openness to experience, the idea that you can you know, see something that from one perspective is a funny story and from another perspective has something that seems to animate this. I mean, you 
the thesis of the book, if I get it rightly, is that to give it its most banal expression is that travel broadens the mind. But you say at one point, I think, if all young adults were required to spend two weeks in a foreign country, two-thirds of the world's diplomatic problems would be solved. I'm terribly aware of how often in sort of the populist movements which have swept both the UK and the US, the two countries where I claim citizenship and which are showing in many, many other societies as well, there is a tendency to disdain the other and to feel threatened by it. And a lot of the time I think that that comes from the not knowing of what it is that you're disdaining or feeling threatened by. You know, there's an old adage that you can't hate anyone whose story you know. If you actually travel to another country and see what life is like in that other country, you will have a different sympathy for and a different response to the people of that country, the policies of that country, the people who come out of it. Um, uh, Jung said that uh, if you do not know uh, someone well, you are likely to think of him as a fool. And I think we as countries don't know one another nearly so well as we might. And a lot of the time I hear it over and over again. I've heard it in the Trump campaign. I heard it in the Brexit campaign. You have people who uh, are uh, describing a world in which their presumption is that everyone else would like to be like us, and all those people who aren't like us have failed at being like us, and if we don't guard our us-ness, that they will somehow come and usurp it and take it away from us. And as soon as you do any kind of engaged travel, you discover actually people elsewhere have not failed at being like us, they've succeeded at being like themselves. And you might not want to be like them, but they might not want to be like, you know, there's all of it that becomes clear. Do you think Trumpism would be possible in a country where more people had passports? I think it would be a much weaker movement in a country where more people had passports. I mean, I think a lot of Trumpism has been about exploiting people's anxieties and fears and stoking them, you know, in the most self-interested and appalling way. And I think also there's this false notion that the closing of borders is somehow the way to achieve greater security. You know, Trump's notion that we're building a great fortress around ourselves. When I was reporting in Libya under Gaddafi, I discovered that every one of the people I met in the government there who favored reunification um, with, or engagement at any rate, with uh, Western powers had done a graduate degree in the US or the UK, or perhaps in France. Every single person I met who was firmly opposed to rejoining the world economy uh, and to giving up nuclear weapons and all of the rest of the stuff that went with that had not studied outside of Libya. Just not to say that, you know, because we bring sort of 40 people from Syria to Birkbeck College, suddenly the problems will all disappear. It's just that people who have been exposed to another society have a sympathy with it. And we benefit not only from traveling ourselves, but also from welcoming travelers into our societies. Do you feel uncomplicatedly optimistic about the potential of travel? I mean, do some people, do you think, ever, as it were, in the old cliche, you know, I went abroad, didn't like it? (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, I don't really feel uncomplicatedly about anything. I think I think that there are people whose idea of travel is that you go to reinforce the belief that your way of life is superior, whose purpose in traveling is mostly to shore up their own insecurities and to come back saying, well, we're bloody lucky we don't live like that. But I think that's really a relatively slim part of the population. I think also people go on tours, you know, large groups of people going to, I don't know, 
Mallorca or something where they, they aren't really engaging very much with the place where they are. They're just physically in a different place where they've gone for the weather. But I think most people, if they're really exposed to another society and really travel through it, most people find native curiosity awakening in the face of that difference and grow from it. Do you feel, I mean, you know, one of the things you've said very articulately is that people are being not failing to be you, but succeeding in being themselves. But there's also, I'd suggest, a sort of strand of what I would recognise as kind of liberal universalism. I mean, you you talk about LGBT rights, about freedom of speech, and the, the sort of fundamentals of Western liberalism. Do you get find any point at which that butts up against the idea that actually there might be cultural particularities where, because I know it's an anxiety in certain corners of the left that, you know, we can't impose our values. We shouldn't seek to impose all our values. Maybe they don't want to be like us. Do you find that problematic, that line? The thing that I find problematic is not so much... I mean, I do find it problematic when we go and say, you know, you should all... This is what you should wear to the beach because this is what we wear to the beach and you're practicing your own point of view is somehow a threat to our point of view. I think there's plenty of room for... Um, for diversity. I think though that we have to recognize within many of those societies where we say we don't want to impose our point of view that people are suffering. I mean, there's a chapter in the book that's about my experience in Ghana. I went to Ghana uh, for a friend's wedding. I sat next to someone who was a local politician. We had a very nice chat. Uh, a few years later, he wanted to write a book. Uh, he came through New York. He came and stayed with me. I had a little party for him to meet some publishers. Um, then when the book was coming out, uh, he had become the vice president of Ghana. And he came over. And three days after the book came out, we had a book party at my house. And five days after the book came out, the president of Ghana died. And he became the president of Ghana. And at some point, his opponents discovered this, I mean, incredibly slender connection. And they began saying John Mahama was elected to office because of the LGBT activist in America, Andrew Solomon. And there were pictures of my wedding from 2007 suddenly appeared a couple of years ago on the front of almost every newspaper in Ghana with sort of huge banner headlines saying John's gay pal marries man and so on. But the consequence of that has been that I've heard an enormous amount from Ghanaians. I still get probably 20 or 30 emails a day. At one point, I was getting two or 300 emails a day from people in Ghana. And some of them say, you know, you're the devil's spawn, and if you come to our country again, I'll kill you, which is not so great to wake up to. And um, some of them say, I'm gay, and you can't imagine how awful it is. Can you save me? Can you help me? Can you do anything? And I would say the largest group come from people who say, the attitudes in our country are actually quite benighted, and I admire you for standing up for these things, and I hope we'll see these freedoms come here. So on the one hand, you don't want to practice cultural imperialism, but you also don't want to take the patronizing position that practices that clearly are oppressive to a substantial part of the population are somehow necessarily what all of the population had in mind or what all of the population believed in. I think both the right that is colonialist and the left that is non-interventionist can be very mistaken in their point of view. That's very well put. Um, can I ask a bit how you travel? I mean, I remember reading Paul Theroux in one of his uh, travel books years ago saying that he, he wouldn't take photographs because he didn't think he'd remember things. Do you take photographs? Do you take, I mean, notes, presumably, journalistically, but... I take lots of photographs and I make lots of notes, but I have a really dreadful memory. So I, if I don't take photographs, I won't remember. And if I do take photographs, I will sort of remember at least what's in the photographs. Uh, also, I often feel 
I mean, part of the reason that I'm a writer is because I enjoy the process of communication. And while I very much enjoy seeing some place, I sort of am always thinking when I get home, you know, I'll show my friends these photos, I'll show my children these photos, they'll understand this place that they haven't been. There's always a sense of wanting to kind of carry something back with me to um, uh, to tell the story. I think, though, that the you know, the distinction that gets made is between the tourist and the traveler, and the tourist goes to see another society, and the traveler goes to inhabit another society. To me, it's all about people. I mean, I was working on this, and someone said, oh, it's an anthology about um, places you've been. And I said, in one way it is, but it's also an anthology of people I've met. And I think a lot of the time, journalists tend to talk to people at two levels. They talk to government officials and leading businessmen who usually have a deep investment in what they're saying um, and are saying it with um, a good reason. And then it's sort of peppered with, um, but funny enough, the taxi driver said, da-da-da-da-da, or the man who got my hair commented that so-and-so. And I feel like in every society, there is a large body of people, like the ones who listen to this podcast, who are actually intelligent, informed, engaged, and interested in how their country is progressing and how it's perceived. And in writing a lot of the time about communities of artists or about people who have been involved in protest movements or about people within universities and so on and so forth, looking at that segment of the population, I found people who speak with really a surprising degree of poetry in one place after the next that I've gone. And I've come away thinking, not that I fully know any place, because after all, there are you know, stories about going places for reasonably short lengths of time, but that I know a piece of it um, and getting some of the emotion of the place. Yeah, you also talk about the sort of breadth rather than depth in the sense that you're you're not someone who's, as it were, gone native and has lived as a, been embedded as a correspondent. Is there a special value to having that freshness, do you think, and coming to a place, you know, I mean, you'll report from Moscow, I presume, differently as someone who's there for two, two weeks or three weeks to somebody who's been there for sort of six years. I think as a society altogether, we have overvalued depth of knowledge and undervalued breadth of knowledge. So, you know, you go to see a doctor and he's sort of a specialist on this particular kind of tumor if it occurs on your right knee and started on a Wednesday. And there's sort of somebody else you see if it was slightly different and so on. And there's been a movement in medicine to say, actually, you have to sort of treat the whole body and you have to have whole body health. And it has to include psychiatry and surgery and medications and all of these other interventions that can work together depending on what the condition is. I think similarly, there has been a tendency for a lot of people to write in great depth and often very brilliantly and very movingly about societies that they've inhabited for a long time. But I think there's something to be said for being the wanderer who's been in many places and who can arrive in Myanmar and say, that's so strangely like what people were saying in Leningrad in 1989, or who can say, that's so strangely unlike what they were saying in what seemed like parallel circumstances um, at that time. So I think, it's not that I think it's a better wisdom that comes of breadth, but I think it's an equal wisdom and perhaps a less frequent one. I should just try, I don't know whether you saw Theresa May's speech in conference, our Prime Minister, your Prime Minister as well, of course. Yes. Um, but she, she said, if you believe you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. You don't understand what the very word citizenship means. Um, I'm assuming you'd take issue with that. I would indeed take issue with that. I think on the one hand, I mean, you have to have a place that you call home. I think it's very difficult for people who don't have any place that they uh, feel an affiliation with. 
But I don't think that that has to be exclusionary. I mean, I think she is dichotomizing a non-dichotomous situation when she says, effectively, I mean, I'm generalizing now from that, but, you know, if you're really British, you're not a citizen of the world. If you say you're a citizen of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. No, you can say, I am British, and I am a citizen of the world, and I have a particular affiliation with Botswana because I've spent a lot of time there and I really, really like it. And you can define it in all of these open ways. It's the same way that I think our notions of family have broadened to include step-parents, to include gay couples, to include all of these other things. There's a broadening that requires a vocabulary. What's happened now is that because globalism has been connected in so many people's minds to the moving of jobs overseas and in some strange way to automation, which actually has nothing to do with globalism, people feel that they are being personally injured by the breaking down of borders. I would say to them that the solution to that is not to re-erect those borders and put a lot of walls in place, but rather to engage with those other cultures and figure out how in a collaboration there is space for people to have multiple identities. It's intersectionality. You know, I could say, I don't know, I'm gay, I'm Jewish, I'm a dual national, I'm um, uh, 52 years old. I mean, I have all of these characteristics and to say I only have things in common with other 52-year-olds would be incredibly, incredibly narrow. Yeah, which interestingly connects very well with your argument in Far From the Tree. I mean, I suddenly realized that there's a sort of common route. Um, I suppose, just when we're getting towards the end of our time, um, you do say in the book that, you know, because you're working as a journalist, it's great because either you've got, you have a good time or you come away with a good story. Has that ever failed you? I mean, have you ever gone to a place and come away with neither a good time nor a good story? I mean, certainly not in the book, if so. No, I think most of the time when I've had a bad time, I've had a spectacularly bad time. As you pointed out earlier in this conversation, I'm sort of given to throwing myself in at the deep end, and usually you can't do that and be very neutral. I mean, I've been on, I don't know, Caribbean beach holidays with my dad in which I, you know, the weather wasn't very good and it wasn't very interesting and I didn't come away with much. I think when I've gone to places journalistically, it's sometimes it's very difficult to write about why some place is wonderful. It's much harder than it is to write about why some place is really awful. Um, and I discovered that if I feel uninterested in the place that I've come to, it's usually because of some resistance in me, and I get into a kind of moment of Freudian self-analysis and think, why am I not engaging um, more readily with this place? I think the the trouble of trying to explain. And it's part of why when I wrote this book, I included both, you know, reporting from Afghanistan and the invasion and reporting from Libya and reporting from Rwanda and all of these other very troubled spots. I kind of interspersed it with some of the things I'd written about places where I just had a really good time, because I think you can get a bit pompous about all of this and say, you know, you must travel to broaden your mind and to understand the world and to engage, which is terrific. But you also should travel because it's just so interesting and you can have such a good time and you can eat things you've never ate before and you can sing songs you never sang before and you can end up, I mean, I have the story in there of being in the Solomon Islands and having trekked into um, an inland area where there had been no uh, foreign visitors for 30 years and late at night we were just about to go to sleep and we heard the sound of music and the people at this tiny village we were in on a, a mountainside had come out and they were singing and we stepped out and we thought, oh, it's so enchanting, it's so magical. We were in the rainforest, but the rain stopped, the moon came out. And then one of them said, do you have music in your culture? And we said, well, yes, of course. And they said, sing something. 
So we sort of sang for them. And then they said, what about dancing in your culture? And I was traveling with an old school friend, and she and I um, did a little swing routine, and they kind of all applauded around us. And I thought, you know, they've given us so much, but they're also so interested in learning things from us. And if we can end up doing swing dancing under the moon in the Solomon Islands in this random way, we can find some way to connect with almost anyone almost anywhere. Andrew Solomon, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe at iTunes and you'll get a fresh one every Monday morning.